Hello, this is episode 264 and in it I am talking with architect Emilio Fuscaldo of Nest Architects about green roofs. Now over the years I have loads of uh, inquiries, members of the undercover architect community asking me about green roofs and so when I went on the hunt for someone that I could actually bring on the podcast to discuss this topic from their own personal experience. One specific architect's name kept coming up in all of my searches, Emilio Fuscaldo. So Emilio is a Melbourne-based architect with his own practice that's been running now for around 17 years. And in 2011, he designed a new 80 square metre home, that's right, 80 square metre home for his partner and himself that included a fantastic green roof. Now being his own home, Emilio was able to establish a great understanding of the building and the maintaining of that green roof and also collect a lot of information on what it was like to live with the benefits of a green roof and its impact on the thermal performance uh, of the home and the lifestyle in the home. Traditionally, green roofs are something that we've seen that we see in commercial projects or in overseas work. We've seen, I don't know about you, but I've seen loads of Grand Designs episodes where they've had green roofs. Anytime that I've tried one in my own working life, it's involved concrete, lots of structure and high-end detailing that just really isn't applicable for most people in a residential setting. But Emilio's example is a different approach. And so if you're keen to include a green roof on your home, I know that this is going to be a fantastic conversation for you to hear as Emilio breaks down all of the details for us in how he's designed and constructed this for his own home. Now, if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, plus information on the resources that we discuss, and Emilio's also shared loads of photographs with me uh, that actually show the construction of the green roof that we're going to be discussing and then also of that project completed. You can do that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 264. That's the numbers 264. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in Northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, 
your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. Before we jump into this conversation about green roofs, let me take a minute to tell you about Emilio and Nest Architects. So Nest Architects was founded in 2006 by Emilio and the award-winning practice reflects his personal beliefs in collaboration, environmental sustainability and inclusive design. Emilio is a registered architect and as well as being the director of Nest, he teaches regularly at the University of Melbourne. Now prior to completing his architectural degree, Emilio completed an arts degree with honours in philosophy including a thesis concerning environmental ethics. And you'll hear in the episode about how this led him to architecture as a career. Emilio has significant experience leading projects across diverse sectors, including single residential, hospitality, retail and education. And he enjoys working collaboratively to design environments with warmth and meaning. Now, in this episode, you'll hear Emilio talk about his green roof being an extensive green roof. So you can also have intensive and semi-intensive green roofs. Uh, Those will have a deeper profile. They'll support a more significant type of planting such as food gardens or heavily planted areas. And I find that it's the intensive and semi-intensive versions that are people often thinking about when they're hearing about green roofs. Whereas extensive green roofs, they're shallower in profile, but they only support a particular type of planting. So you'll hear Emilio talk about that. And you might be surprised just how little soil they actually need in order to work. Now, remember that you can download a free PDF transcript of this episode. I've got links to all of the resources that we mentioned. You've got access to a huge range of images as well that Emilio has shared with me showing the construction of this green roof, plus lots of other things that I've added in there at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 264. That's the numbers 264. Well, Emilio, it is so great to have you here on the podcast. I'm super excited uh, about what you're going to be sharing with the Undercover Architect community. Uh, When I first touched base with you, it was after a lot of Googling and finding your name and a particular project kept cropping up around this subject. So I'm really looking forward to being able to dive into it in more detail with you. I'm wondering if just before we dive into that, whether you can share a little bit about yourself, how you became an architect and, you know, actually creating your own business, Nest Architects. Yeah, sure thing, Amelia. Thanks for uh, thanks for um, setting all this up and having me on your podcast. I suppose I came into architecture a little in a roundabout way. I did an arts degree first, and I did my honours in philosophy. And during that, kind of developed a really keen interest in the built environment, um, how we see the city, how we participate, how we build community, and all those questions keep kept cropping up. So I developed an interest, and in, at the end of that degree, I thought I'd give it a go. So I gave it a year at the university and uh, thought, well, if uh, if um, I can get through that, then perhaps it's a, a career for me. So it wasn't, it's a pretty atypical story. Sometimes architects talk about that they always love buildings and they wanted to be an architect from the time they were kids. It wasn't necessarily the case with me. I, I think I developed an interest through my studies and, um, and uh, I kind of fell into it through that. I started my practice pretty green, pretty much straight out of university, just with a few years working for other small architects. And that was because I was probably a bit older. And so I had a good network of people who needed 
design work done. So I fell into projects quite quickly and thought I'd set up a practice. And that was back in 2007. And since then, the practice has gone through a lot of iterations. Have, I've had lots of staff. I've had zero staff, <laughs> especially through COVID. It's been a really challenging period um, for the practice, but I feel like I'm in a good spot at the moment. And the practice these days is just looking, just focuses on uh, residential projects, which we're really, really happy to be um, undertaking. I think that the fact that you founded your practice in 2007, you know, that's what, 15 years now that, I mean, so many businesses don't last anywhere near that long. So it's a testament to your ability to iterate and uh, change the types of projects and business models, I imagine, to navigate all of the various times that we've gone through. I think um, when I look through your portfolio of work, your project work is quite wide and varied. And you mentioned that you're you know, largely now focusing on residential work, um, but you've got hospitality, you've got retail, you've got individual residential homes, you know, through your portfolio. And a lot of architectural practices do avoid doing that. They start out and they focus on one type of project and stick to it and become known for that. Do you, have you found over the course of developing your business, you know, as you've shifted through these different kind of projects and now moving to be solely focused in residential work that you've had a similar approach? Has there been something sort of tying all of that different type of work together in your ethos around being an architect and, and having your business? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's a great question to reflect on. I think broadly speaking, as an architect, I really enjoy the puzzle of it all. <laughs> I like to try, I think of it as a bit of a puzzle. I like to try and unpack it and, and, and find the right answers. And the questions are fairly similar for every type of project because the questions we like to ask of our clients, whether it's, retail, cafe or a home is, how do you want to be in that space? What's the atmosphere? What are the behaviours you're trying to promote? What are the behaviours you're trying to not promote? What's the atmosphere like? And then in terms of sustainability, how aspirational are you? And so those questions pertain to all those different types of projects, just at different scales, I think, and complexity. The public projects are, are great because at that scale, you, you you have to incorporate strangers. I mean, you have to cater for lots of different types of people. And that's a really, really fun thing to try and do. Do you bring people together or you're trying to zone people away from each other? How do you give disparate, um, people with different cultural backgrounds, agency in space? So those that's really, really challenging and really fun. That's a really fun puzzle to try and solve. But even in the home, we find that those questions are really important, especially these days with young people and children just try and navigate around this idea of screens and how we get them off and how we get them outside and how we make them social and promote those sorts of behaviors i mean they're they're incredibly um, difficult questions to try and solve but really fun as well so i think through all of those different types of projects it's about prioritizing people and prioritizing how they want to be in the space and how they want to behave in the space at different scales. It's just same question. It's just different complexities. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's an amazing analysis of, you know, a lot of what we talk about in Undercover Architect is thinking about how do you want to feel? What kind of lifestyle do you want to lead? And then let the shape of the space and the way that the space functions support 
those those aspirations and goals that you have for your future lifestyle. And I know that a lot of homeowners are navigating the trickiness around screens and and how do they incorporate that into their home without it becoming a dominant factor in their home? How do they still support connectiveness uh, and connectivity between each other as family members whilst maintaining the opportunity to have space and privacy apart from each other? And so that behavioural study and thinking about the behaviour is, is an incredible uh, you know, sort of exercise to go through. Do you find when you're kind of working and having conversations with clients, because I imagine that you're working with clients perhaps that have young children who haven't even thought about a teenager on a mobile phone or anything like that, and you're sort of trying to prep them for, okay, in this time frame, you're going to look at this. Like, how do you sort of have those conversations with clients about that sort of stuff? Well, I've got two kids um, myself, so they're 10, at 10 and eight and a half at the time of the recording of the podcast. And so we're starting to, as a family, transition into these different stages. And so a lot of the questions that we're talking about at home and the questions that I talk about with my clients, as you probably speak to your audience about the the dynamic between the architect and the clients, very, very um, close. It's very personal. So asking those sorts of questions about how you want to live, uh, what are the issues that you're facing as a family? What are the issues that your kids are facing? Are there behavioural issues um, that the kids um, are facing? Getting an understanding of all that helps them to design a house that really suits their needs. So those questions are, they're really personal, but I think, you know, once you establish confidence and trust with the client and you kind of establish that confidence and trust through asking those questions as well. I mean, people love to know that they're being listened to. And that's the role of, I think that's a really, uh, that's a really great role that the architect can undertake is just listening and asking those questions. And if you miss a question, you want to have the confidence that the client can bring it up and say, hey, we didn't talk about this, but we do, you know, as a family, we like to do these things and we haven't spoken about that. So can we, can we think about that in the design? And I think that's a, that's a great, that's a great part of the project when clients bring things to you and things you haven't thought about so I don't have teenagers but you know my clients have shared with me lots and lots and lots of stories about <laughs> their teenagers and um you know it's, it's great to hear them and it's it's great to try and once again work out that puzzle of how they want to live now you have been your own client because you and your partner actually created your own home in 2011 I believe so and it's a, when I was reading about it, um, it's an 80 square meter home on 180 square meter block. So compact by most people's standards in terms yeah. of the house design and the block size. Can you talk about, obviously you mentioned that you have a 10 and an eight-year-old, where where life was for you back then and at the time and what your goals were with the home? And then also perhaps if you can touch on a little bit, you know, sort of have has that come to fruition, you know, because I can imagine a lot of people go, oh, yeah, it's easy when you've got no children to design an 80-square-metre home, you know, how that's how that sort of played out for you. Yeah, for sure. And when we were designing it, my partner um, wasn't pregnant yet. And, of course, I was designing this aspirational home with no no walls and no no rooms and, you know, it was basically a yurt. And I remember having dinner <laughs> dinner with Anna, my partner, one night, and she said, look, maybe we need to have some bedrooms in here and maybe we need just to tone down the architecture a bit. So she put the brakes on the architectural, you know, wedding cake that I wanted to do, which was great because what we ended up with was quite a really small home I'm not going to lie it was it's very it was very small but we wanted to make sure that we lived to our values so 
you know, we want to be sustainable, we want to be thoughtful, we want to live a life that is in sync with the planet. I know that sounds a little bit uh, greenwashy, but it was true at the time. So it needed to be small because we didn't want to waste a lot of material. It wanted to be full of recycled and reused materials because we didn't we we didn't have a lot of money, so we had to beg, borrow, and steal for a lot of things. And we wanted to make sure that when we spoke about the house, there wasn't that feeling that we compromised on our values, that it really was a reflection of who we were as people. And the third thing was we wanted a house that was green, but at the same time didn't wear it as a badge of honour. We didn't want a virtue signal to anyone. We just wanted to show, show people that you can build an affordable home that's really sustainable. And we wanted to be clear that to do that, the compromises doesn't have to be in the design. The compromises come from you, which is, you know, we did a lot of the building. And yes, that was easy without kids at that time. I, I admit that. And we also got lots of friends involved to help us, um, friends and family. And, we, you know, we borrowed lots of money from lots of people and paid them <laughs> back. So th they were the sorts of compromises we were willing to undertake as opposed to compromising on the actual house itself or what it stood for or its, um, its level of sustainability. Does that make sense? I feel it like does. I'm yeah, no, I think it, it's... it's um... And it's a really great, I'll share some photographs of it um, on the resource. And of course, you can see it on Nest Architects website as well. There's some great photographs of the house. Are you still living there now? No, we we love a project. So we finished that one. We had our two kids, lived there for a few years. And then um, we moved to another part of Melbourne, slightly closer to uh, just in the inner west and slightly closer to the water. So we're, we're very happy with our move. And we bought another house that was clad in asbestos, falling down, had holes in the walls, windows were falling out of walls. It was an absolute wreck. So for us, we looked at that and thought, oh, yeah, that's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just up our alley. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And is it much bigger than your than your 80 square metres? Yeah, it is. It, it's uh, 150 square metres, but the block size is very small as well. So the Coburg house was, we had a limited amount of space around the building. Um, and that's the same as in our home at present. Um, the good thing about Coburg, which this house um, doesn't have, is we, we saw the lack of space on the ground as an opportunity to create some space on the roof, basically. So we had limited garden in, in our Florence project in Coburg. So we thought, well, why not? Let's put some garden on the roof and see if we can do this. We'd seen, we'd seen it done commercially and we'd seen it done on, on institutional buildings. We hadn't seen it done too much in Australia on residential projects. So we thought we'd give it a go. And it was the way we undertook it was very agricultural. We kind of designed it and specified it ourselves. I wouldn't recommend that people who sit outside of the profession or a building profession and and we learn a lot of lessons from from doing that for sure for sure yeah well it's those lessons and that information that I really want to dive into to help homeowners I get lots of inquiries about green roofs and like you it's largely something I've seen in the commercial sector in apartment buildings um, and and the 
the most common expression of it in residential or individual residential is on a commercially constructed high-end residential home. So still does suspended concrete slabs and all of those kinds of things. And uh, the Coburg house is obviously a different approach to that. And as you mentioned, you know, it, the house was about being uh, affordable, something that you could, you know, do some of the construction yourself and really keep it within the constraints that you were setting for yourself in order to actually be able to achieve the project. So when you when you started thinking about putting creating that green space on the roof, what steps did you actually go through to design the house that way and to start thinking about the constructability of that and what you were going to incorporate to make that possible? Sure. Well, the first discussion we had was with our structural engineer before they had done any design work and just to say to them, look, we, we want to do this. We don't know how to do it. And we don't really have any material we can give you. We can't pass on to you any technical information or anything like that. So starting from first principles, what can we do and how does it and how does it affect the rest of the structure? And how much extra stuff do we need? Because if there's so much extra concrete and extra thickness of walls and more steel, then suddenly this thing's going to just blow out. Um, but to our surprise, the engineer essentially said that the structure of the roof which holds the layer of soil on top, is essentially the same as a second story. So once we started to think in those terms, it seemed very achievable. And in fact, the idea occurred to us that if we need, ever needed to go up, we could you know, <laughs> bulldoze, bulldoze the soil and put another story up, but that never happened. But <laughs> so once we understood that it was essentially about the same structure required as a second story we thought well this we can do this and that was a that was an half an hour conversation with our engineer that kind of cleared that up for us we then um, approached a landscape designer and installer and and he was a basically a friend of a friend of ours and we we're very lucky to have that connection and we just worked through the layers so we'd seen what commercial buildings had done. So we understood the sandwich, the profile of the sandwich, that you needed some waterproofing and the waterproofing needed to go onto something solid. And then we needed a drainage layer and then we needed some soil and then we needed some plants. So we understood the layers and we did some uh, pretty thorough investigation into what those products should be. And the landscapers, experience with landscaping helped a lot because he dealt with drainage and he dealt with drainage on flat surfaces and things like that. So we built that profile up and designed it. And as I said, it's a sandwich of about six layers and we costed it all and found that it was going to add around $20,000 onto our project, which we thought was at the, at the time, you know, that was you know, it was a heap of money for us. Um, yeah, that's a big of, hit. Yeah, I can imagine back in 2011 in an 80-square-metre building, that's, yeah, that's a big hit. Yeah, and there was lots of conversations about what could we do with that $20,000 and is it worth it and, you know, are we going to get our money back, which I think it's a question you, it's a question I like to avoid, <laughs> mm -hmm. but inevitably um, it's a question you have to ask. So we didn't know the answer to that. We took a punt, basically. We thought, no, we want to live to our values. We want to demonstrate what can be done regardless of, of the payback uh, period. We're going to do this. 
And if nothing else, we get a bit more grain to play with, you know, um, because we only had very small front and side yards. So we, we ended up with essentially a waterproof box on our roof, which could contain soil. And we lived without the soil for a year. And we measured the temperature inside and out for that year. And then we measured the temperature inside and out when we had the soil on top as well. And so we got some good data about how, how well the roof was insulating the rooms underneath. And um, yeah, looking back on that data, we can see that we were achieving some really good differentials between inside and outside, about seven degrees in summer. So, you know, those stinky hot days in Melbourne when it's, you know, the third day of 36 degrees. And if you've been diligent in the house, kept blinds closed, kept windows closed and flushed it out at night, you, know, you can be in a space that's about 28 degrees without any air conditioning. So we're really, really pleased with how it performed over time. That's amazing. And I know reading through your website, you said that it, there was a reduction in energy use of around 27%. How, how thick did that layer end up being? And were the decisions about what you planted on that roof kind of determinant of how much soil you were going to need? And, you know, all of that sort of discussion of how that profile, you know, what overall dimension that profile was going to need. And then also the irrigation requirements and that kind of stuff. Like, how did you navigate all of that? Yeah, it was, that's a great question. We, we were so surprised that a layer of 20 centimetres of soil or 200 millimetres of soil was sufficient to plant a whole variety of plants. I, I That's thought amazing. That, yeah, I thought we'd need a lot, lot more, like 50 centimetres or 60 centimetres or something. I mean, you can't put trees up there, obviously, but we had a whole host of succulents, grass and vegetables um, and native grasses, and they were all thriving up there so that 20 centimeters was enough it's that's called an extensive green roof profile you can go thinner you can go down to i think about 100 or 50 or 75 millimeters and you can still plant things it's just you narrow down the the types of plants you can do so at 200 centimeters we could do like i said native grasses vegetables and grass and um, succulents and it wasn't a problem at all to the point it was so successful that we had to get up there probably once every two months and start pulling out the saplings from the gum trees that are neighbouring properties that we're throwing into our into our green roof. Of course, you know, having a gum tree on your roof is probably not a great idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> you need to obviously now we're starting to talk about maintenance, which is a real which is a real uh, something that needs to be taken into consideration if you're thinking about a green roof. You kind of you kind of do need to work at it. It's not something that you can uh, just leave for, uh, uh, you know, for more than eight weeks. After eight weeks, you've got to get up there and do some, do some maintenance up there, especially when the soil has just been pumped onto the roof. It literally gets pumped onto the roof with big. I was going to ask how you got it up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a reverse vacuum cleaner. It's just like throws this huge hose that that throws um soil onto your roof it's it's, it's pretty agricultural it's pretty cool <laughs> so maintenance do, you do need to take that into account when the plants are initially planted there's obviously lots of soil around the plants are just small seedlings you can plant with a with a, a layer of what's called sedum which is um like a blanket and what that blanket of seeds does is that it keeps the soil in place, but it also covers up all the soil. 
So nothing can get else can get in there. But of course, we were planting with seedlings. So there's all this soil everywhere. So for the first three months, we're up there like getting weeds out and grasses and, you know, saplings and all that sort of stuff. And how did you manage the irrigation system up there? And, and that sort of integrated with the roof water management of the house and that, those kinds of things? Yeah, so we had a 5,000 litre water tank on the side of the house. So the water would come out of the green roof, go into a gutter and then flow into our water tank. And from there it was pumped back up to the roof via an irrigation system, which was underneath the soil. After um, probably when the uh, garden was established, that was about two seasons, so a summer and, a, and an autumn, started to get quite established by that point, I turned the irrigation off. Um, I thought there's no point in irrigating through winter and in summer we just turn it on, on for those really hot months. So we were using that 5,000 litres was being used by our toilets and also a couple of garden taps as well. Of course, the water that comes out of a green roof is brown. <laughs> <laughs> so... The, so if you're flushing your toilet with it, expect that you're flushing your toilet with brown water. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think that's just something to take into account uh, when when you do that. I've had a couple of clients who have asked us about, you know, why why their toilet's sustaining. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, there's just a few workarounds that that if you're uncomfortable with that sort of stuff, you need to you need to be in control of for sure. Yeah, I'm amazed that you were able to sustain so much in just 200 millimeters of soil like that's and and so can you remember then the dimensionality of like the layers underneath it in terms of that drainage layer and the waterproofing and the solid layer and stuff so the roof is constructed our roof was constructed with um, you know, rafters which are about 300 millimeters within that 300 meters we were able to insulate so we're able to put bats and then and then our ceiling lining on top of the roof struck on the rafters we're at 25 millimeters of plywood and that created a base where we could build parapets to contain the soil. So above the plywood, there was a really thin layer of uh, waterproofing membrane, which is essentially about a three mil thick um, spray-on paint. There's different versions. You can use bitumen as well, and there's different versions of this. But if you think of it as a layer of, basically, it's like elastic paint, right? And that goes down our little walls and along the base. Then on top of that, we have about um, 25 millimetres of drainage. And it's you can think of that as honeycomb, like a honeycomb shape. And it sits on, on, on top of the waterproofing. On top of that, there is geotextile material, which is essentially like, like stockings, and that stops the fines of the soil going into the drainage and blocking it. And then you've got your soil on top. Sorry, I should have mentioned in between there, there's the um, tubes for the irrigation, the water irrigation as well. So that build-up is about 200 and I'll do the math, I don't know, 40, 40 mil. And the little walls that sat around to create basically the, 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 the perimeter of our, of our garden. They were about 300 or 320 millimetres tall. Now, wow. in the design of the roof, if you've got 300 millimetres of roof and then you've got another 300 millimetres of wall to contain the soil, you end up with a six, it's very big, thick roof. So there's a, our design trick was to bring 
the walls, the parapets that held the soil in from the edge of the roof so that when you looked at the house, you just had this 300 millimetre profile of roof and the thicker walls for the soil set back. Of course, you can take them out and then you've got, and then you've got a very thick roof. It just kind of depends on the look and feel that you're going for. I love that. Thank you for taking us through that detail. Yeah, sorry, what else are we going to add to that? I was, I was just going to say, like, um, obviously the water needs to get out, so it can't be completely flat. So something needs to angle to get that water to move out. And our whole roof had a five-degree angle to it. If people's roofs are completely flat, then they'll need to somehow create an angle to get that water to, to move with gravity. Gotcha. Okay. That's... Uh... Like, it's funny, isn't it? It sounds so simple that it's amazing that it's not actually happening more <laughs> in terms of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you have any issues with council or during the construction process itself in terms of convincing anybody that this was feasible and it was going to do what it needed to do? No, I mean, the, the council just read it as a roof. We wrote grade roof on our drawings, but there was no, they'd never questioned that. Obtaining the building permit, once again, there was no issues because we didn't, we, we didn't want the roof to act as what we call in Victoria a private open space. So it wasn't a balcony or a backyard or a front yard. It wasn't a place where you'd go and have a drink and play with the kids. It was simply a roof. And, yes, we undertake maintenance. We did undertake maintenance of that roof much more regularly than anyone else does, no <laughs> doubt. But we're still just doing maintenance. So... Yeah, we didn't confront any issues um, with regards to council or building permit. Now, if you want the roof to work as an outdoor space, then, of course, that triggers regulations with regards to overlooking your neighbours, overshadowing your neighbours, and also balustrating. balustrating staircases and all that sort of stuff to get up. So once you go into that world, Yes, the regulatory uh, framework is much more rigorous, definitely. But for us, I mean, perhaps it's a bit of a grey zone, but we didn't see it as that at all. We just thought, um, look, it's a roof and we're going to be up there um, slightly more than anyone else, and that was it. How, how did you physically get up there? So we had a really simple ladder, which we padlocked so that no, no kids could get it it was padlocked to um, the house and on top of the house we had designed handrails that were very similar to how you get in and out of a pool so the handrails extended down the wall and then up and over onto the roof Um, so that meant that you could position the ladder securely and the ladder hitched onto a a proprietary uh, bracket so it was stable and then when you got about halfway up the ladder you had some rails which can help you um, get up. There are commercially available ladders and um, cages, which um, people, if, if you have a look, you can see them on the side of um, apartment buildings and, and um, shopping centres where you need access onto the roof. So you can, you can, you can go all the way down that, that uh, road if you want to, um, or you can be slightly more um, designery with it as well. Now that's it for part one of my conversation with Emilio. 
Look, after we recorded our conversation, I actually checked in with Emilio because there was a few questions that I had for him following our conversation. One was about the brand of the membrane, the waterproofing membrane that he specifies for his green roofs, because this is a specific area where some builders can take issue with the construction of green roofs in residential construction and the reliability of that membrane. Some builders want a mechanical waterproofing layer, so some type of material that's fixed down, whereas uh, what Emilio used was actually a membrane over the top of the plywood uh, substrate. Now, Emilio let me know that he uses the Casali Derma Bit product. So that's C-A-S-A-L-I, new word, D-E-S. R-M-A-B-I-T product. It has a 20-year warranty and it can be used for roofs that are exposed to the sun's UV. Emilio actually said that we tend to use this product as some parts of the waterproofing are often exposed to the sun. For example, where the waterproofing runs into a box gutter and is not covered with soil. Now, uh, make sure you join me for part two of this conversation in the next episode. Emilio is going to continue to share. I had a few more questions about his green roof. Uh, so he talks with me about that. And then we go on to discuss another project that he's recently completed that also has a green roof. It was a renovation and an extension that had a green roof on the new part of the home. And it's also an all electric home. And so Amelia shares some fantastic ideas and information and findings uh, from conversations with the client after occupation to really uh, help you understand how the design, the construction and the specifications have all helped improve the performance and the sustainability of the home. So be sure to tune into that. There's some really interesting information in there uh, that I know is going to be super helpful for you. Now, remember, I've got a free downloadable PDF transcript of this episode. I've also got links to the resources that we've mentioned, plus lots of photographs that you can have a look at. You can find all of that at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 264. And been really generous in sharing photographs with me of the green roof under construction so you can see the layers and what they look like uh, and you can see how that all ended up looking when it was installed and then the change to when it was more established as always thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally until next time bye